You are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Interlude in a Miserable Year by Slippin' Mickeys on Gossamer. Rating, Tina Nup. Disclaimer, this is one of Slippin' Mickeys' first works. He left the balcony door open trying to create something of an air current through his tiny one-room apartment. It was the kind you could rent by the week, and he found in the three he'd been there that L.A. summers were hot, and if you weren't close to the ocean, you felt it. Still, it had never occurred to the builders or the management to include even a small air conditioning unit. The open door did little to alleviate the heat in his tiny apartment though it did create enough of a current to cause the front door to slam shut loudly as he reached for his keys to lock it. He winced a bit at the sound and guiltily tried to keep his keychain from jangling too much to make up for it. The manager, an immigrant with short hair and bad teeth, stuck her head out of her own door and glared at him down the hallway. He smiled at her apologetically, but she didn't return it. Instead, pulling her head back and shutting her own door with an irritated flick, slamming it hard enough for him to appreciate the irony. He took the elevator down to street level and walked the four or five blocks to where he'd parked his car. The unit he was renting didn't come with a parking space, and the bad things he'd heard about parking in L.A. weren't a myth. He had an appointment at the passport office in the L.A. Federal Building at one o'clock but he'd left two hours early to afford himself the time to fight the scads of traffic heading over the hill and out of the valley. In reality, he had no need for a passport, having several different passports with different aliases already in his possession. But the appointment with the passport agency would get him access into the building, and he'd been assured that was all he needed. He worried a bit about the recently heightened security, but tried not to let the anxiety dampen his ambition. He'd worn a suit and tie as camouflage, hoping the lunchtime appointment would have him look both like a businessman running pre-travel errands on a lunch break and a government employee who had belonged in the building. It wouldn't be a hard part to act. Contrary to his actions, he wasn't a criminal, and the fact of the matter was, he used to be a cop. Now, he was just a man. A man who had a lover and a son, and a life he was desperate to get back to. As he turned onto the freeway entrance, he was surprised to find the meter off and traffic flying. A rare thing on the 405. He pressed his foot to the floor and merged into traffic with little trouble. As he drove, he knew at this rate he'd have some spare time before his appointment. Mulder absently wondered how he'd fill it. It took him 20 minutes to get to the federal building but another ten just to turn onto Wilshire and drive the hundred or so yards to the building's entrance. He found the parking plentiful in the large visitor's lot, and that, in and of itself, was refreshing. He made his way up the stairs and up to the building itself. When he got to the entrance, he was suddenly glad he was an hour or two early. The building's entrance had two doors, one on each side of a massive foyer. The employee door to the left was open and empty. The security guard assigned to it absently picked at his cuticles, bored. The public entrance, however, used almost exclusively by people heading to the passport office, who had problems with their passport or were immigrants hoping to travel, 
was crowded with a line that stretched haphazardly from the open doorway and around the side of the building. Mulder stopped in his tracks and reevaluated his game plan. The gunman had gotten him a fake ID pass, which he'd planned to put on as he left the passport office, thereby entering the off-public limits portion of the building, but effectively bypassing the security that would check the badge. Looking at the line now, he decided he'd rather take his chances with the board security guard. He affixed the badge to his lapel and tried to look confident. The guard shoved himself off the wall he was leaning against when Mulder approached and held up a scanner to the badge. It beeped him through, and the guard leaned back against the wall again, the process taking all of two seconds. Mulder didn't take the time to question his luck. He'd been walking around for an hour and a half, and he'd been completely unsuccessful in his search. He'd gotten his way into three separate computer systems throughout the building and had come up with absolutely nothing. The information he'd hoped to find simply wasn't there. He'd have to get to an institution with more access, more security, and more information. He didn't look forward to having to start from scratch. He'd lost enough time already. He stepped away from the workstation he'd been at and out into the hallway. Mulder shot a phony smile at the passing female agent and made his way towards the elevators. He was almost to the corner that led to them when he heard the doors ding open, revealing a conversation that was halfway over and all of the way bad. The security camera caught him coming in. Here's a screen grab. The picture's terrible, but you can make out what he's wearing. The badge this guy was using was from an agent that's been dead for two months. Mulder did an about face and tamped down his impulse to run. He began walking quickly down the hallway, looking for a place to hide. He heard footsteps approaching the corner and ducked into the ladies' restroom, hoping the men wouldn't follow. The bathroom door snicked shut, and he turned towards the stalls and then froze immediately in his tracks. There was a woman leaning against the porcelain sink basin, arms braced against the surface, shoulders slightly slumped, auburn hair draped down, shielding her face. She was unaware of his presence, or she simply didn't care that someone was coming into the washroom. There was a defeated look about her posture, and she took a deep breath where she was standing, releasing it on a sigh. She finally straightened and ran her hands under the water, and still he didn't move or make a sound. It was only when she turned to grab a paper towel did she look up. She froze then as well, water dripping off the end of her fingers onto the cold surface of the floor. He blinked once, just to make sure she was real and at the same time she took one quick step towards him and pulled up short. He moved his mouth to try and form a word, but no sound escaped. Water continued to drip from her fingers, the drops falling with less frequency. Finally, he found his voice. Scully? She didn't say anything. She didn't move. He pressed his lips together and took a step toward her. Mulder could hear her breathing and watched as she reached a hand out and set it on the sink as if to steady herself. He reached out his own hands, feeling sluggish, feeling weak. It felt as though the moment slowed, like when time turned to honey in a rush of adrenaline. Car accidents and gunshots, he knew the sensation well. His hands rose to her like a sunflower to the sun, reaching out and opening to the source of life that fed it. He stepped up to her, and her face contorted on his name. His arms fell to his sides, and his face mirrored hers. Mulder? What are you... what are you doing here? he asked. 
the words falling unbidden from his mouth. Mulder, she asked again, and it occurred to him that she was really looking for an answer. It's me, he said. She grabbed at him then, and he grabbed back, all arms and clothes and a height difference between them. Then his mouth found hers, and he lost himself there. How did you find me here, Scully asked, when they finally had to breathe. I didn't mean to, he said sheepishly. Fate had brought them together. Not even he could keep them apart. Jesus, she said on a whisper, and stepped in to him again. He had his hands in her hair and was thinking of kissing her again when the door to the ladies' room opened. Scully looked over his shoulder towards the door, and her eyebrow rose. Oh, he heard the same voice from the hallway say, Sorry. He could hear the surprise and amusement in the man's voice. The door closed again, and he heard a muffled chuckle in the hallway. Am I in the wrong bathroom? Scully said, slipping her eyes back to his, knowing the answer. They're looking for me. And you're not looking for them, she said. It wasn't a question. His hands fell from her hair and landed at her shoulders. Hers were still at his lapels. He bit the inside of his cheek, not saying what he was thinking. She dropped her head, hearing it anyway. I don't want you to go she said in a small voice. She let that hang in the air for a moment before she spoke again. But I'll help you leave. The restaurant he'd asked her to meet him at was a hole-in-the-wall Chinese place on Santa Monica Boulevard. The lighting was bad, and the food was worse. But the wait staff would leave you alone and spoke little English. The regular clientele frequented it because of this, and were of the sort that your mother warned you about. But there seemed to be an aura of unstated understanding, that if they were even questioned by anyone, they wouldn't mention you, and you wouldn't mention them. It was a symbiotic relationship, coveted by a seedy underbelly and reeking of Los Angeles. He slid into a booth where he could watch the door. Mulder neither saw nor heard her approach. He'd been staring at a wallet-sized picture when he felt her and looked up. Is this seat taken, she said. They had an already established code for when they weren't allowed to see each other. She slid into the seat across from him and reached out her hand. I should warn you, he began in kind, but didn't finish. He laced his fingers with hers across the table. He glanced down again at the photo and then back up to her. How is he, he asked. His voice had that breathy, raspy quality to it that he sometimes hated. He's good, Scully answered smiling as she thought of their son. And how are you? Not quite as good, she said, the face falling and her voice hitching. He watched tears pool in her eyes and it tore at him. He squeezed her hand and let it hang in the air. He wanted to fix it and he knew he couldn't. She squeezed back and towed him under the table. I see more of you and him every day, she finally said, not letting the tears fall and smiling again as she recalled the memory of him. Yeah, Mulder said hopefully. She nodded. He's got a big head. They both grinned at that, and a waiter approached with water. Mulder reached for his and stared at the ice that chilled it. I got your email, she finally said, and he looked up at that. I probably shouldn't have. I'm glad you did, she said, and then hesitated. I read it every day. He held her gaze for a moment remembering the panicky, shaky feeling he got when he clicked on the icon to send it.
I thought the hardest part would be leaving, he told her. But it gets tougher by the day. Their eyes connected again and held, finding the coolest corner in a necessary hell. The waiter returned and they ordered quickly, picking the first thing on the menu. I brought back Doggett's tie and coat, Mulder said, when the waiter had gone, pushing a plastic Vaughn shopping bag across the table towards her. She dragged it the rest of the way and deposited it in the seat next to her. You may not get yours back, she said simply. It's too hot to wear around here anyway, he said flippantly, trying not to be annoyed that it was his favorite tie. Did you tell him why you needed it? She shook her head. I think he knew anyway, she said. Tell him I appreciate the favor. She nodded and reached for his other hand. They held hands as they walked from his car to his apartment, feeling hesitant and adolescent. Mulder pulled up short after two blocks of walking, under a dark spot between two streetlights. They moved to the edge of the sidewalk as a jogger ran past and only spoke when she disappeared around a corner. We only have tonight, Mulder said, dropping his head to rest on the crown of hers. I know, she answered, her voice only registering a notch above the chirping crickets. They both knew he should have left the city that night, but they denied the admission as if ignoring it made the chance he'd get captured go away. They both turned in the direction of his apartment without another word. Mulder led Scully up the stairs of his building, prolonging the time they'd walk hand in hand, if only for a minute. They passed by the landlord's door and Mulder remembered her scalding look earlier in the day and stepped a little faster. Scully stood holding her hands in front of her as he unlocked his door, opening it for her with an apologetic half-smile. He closed the door, sliding the chain he never used in an unconscious gesture of defiance to whatever would disturb them that night. Scully stood in the short hallway looking uncomfortable and out of place. There wasn't a leather couch here, and she missed the musty smell of his fish tank. Mulder brushed past her, trailing his fingers down her arm as he did. Please come on in, he said. Can I get you something to drink? The polite gesture felt foreign, and he shrugged off the light jacket he was wearing, suddenly nervous. When he turned back to her, she was right in front of him, her arms wrapping around him suddenly, as they had eight years before, after duct-taped hands and a shape-shifting demon who was after her fingernails. She cried in the same way, and he tried to comfort her, in kind. I can't do this anymore, Mulder, she said, and Mulder felt his heart break anew. I can't either, he said. Try not to let his voice crack. They embraced for endless minutes more, knowing they would both have to. Mulder leaned down and planted a kiss on her forehead as they both sobered a bit, stepping away from each other as Mulder led her to a large cot in the corner of the room, the only place to sit. So what are you doing in L.A., he said, sitting down next to her. I never asked. The cot sank under them, tilting their balance towards each other. An odd, small smile crossed her face on his question, and she hesitated her answer. Psychic projection, she finally said, to the degree where others share the vision and exist within it. Geez, Mulder said, intrigued. What's this guy projecting? The Brady Bunch house. He shot her a sideways glance. Sure, she was pulling his leg. Her face was honest and didn't falter. Have you seen it? Are you close to substantiation? Scully nodded with a little half-smile. We're ironing that out right now, taking him back to D.C. tomorrow. Mulder was both amazed and a little hurt, 
legitimacy to his beliefs within reach and he wasn't allowed to touch it. Still, all the better that Scully was on it, a scientist with rigid rules and nearly a decade of his warped influence. Damn, Mulder said reverently. They sat on the cot in silence, their legs and shoulders pressed against each other. Tell me about him, Mulder finally said, turning on the bed to face her. Tell me about William. She smiled again. There's so much to tell, she said. I wish you could see him. Mulder closed his eyes. God, Scully, he said. His head fell to his chest. He felt her warm hand on his leg. He laughs when you tickle his feet, and his hair is starting to come in. He loves to be held and sung to. He has the beginning of a cleft in his chin. He looks like you. A small smile spread across his lips as he took that in and held it with him. I'm so sorry, Scully, he said, finally looking up. He was a deadbeat dad to a bastard son, a boy that could save the world. He knew the pain of a father's absence and hated himself intensely. But sometimes pain is a necessity, and sometimes loneliness is a choice. I am too, she said quietly. This was a woman who loved him and hated him and couldn't live without him. Mulder closed his eyes to the pain in her voice, wondering at his own heart, since she'd always been the strong one. A tear fell from her eyes and landed soft and warm on his hand. Hold me, she said. The night was filled with heat, both within and without. Mulder had left his balcony door open wide and the curtains hanging haphazardly unclosed. The moonlight shone in through it and highlighted only the cot, like a blue-gelled spotlight that shone on a barely-dressed stage. They laid there, heads together, sharing a pillow. Scully had the sheet pulled up over her breasts as a late nod to modesty. Half an hour earlier, anyone who had looked in through the glass could have seen them making love. Mulder's arm was tucked under Scully's head, and it was starting to fall asleep. He wiggled his fingers a bit to fight the sensation, but refused to move it. When will we be like this again? Scully softly mumbled, her breath soft and hot against the skin of his bicep. Meow, Mulder rumbled back at her, wiggling his eyebrows. Give me another minute here and we'll... That's not what I meant, she said with a blink, her stare sobering him. Mulder trailed a finger down her belly, under the covers. When we find what we're looking for, he answered, watching his hand and not her face. And what is it we're looking for? He didn't answer, knowing she didn't expect him to. The truth was an ambiguous concept and a word that, over the years, she began to loathe. He felt cheap taking the easy way out and shifted uncomfortably on the small bed. I feel like we've been backed into a corner molder, she said, adjusting to his new position. The three of us. Three. The word itself was scary and mystical, and Mulder hoped he wouldn't lose himself in his quest to keep it whole. If this child was anything like its father, William would find himself where Mulder had all those years ago, searching tirelessly for a family he lost and breaking his mother's heart. Call me Mint Jelly, because I'm on the lamb. His second to last words to her four months before. She rolled out that wet, teary smile she reserved only for him, and didn't let on that she knew he'd stolen the line from a Simpsons episode. He knew she knew, anyway, as they watched it together. I love you, Scully, he'd said then. I always have. 
I love you too, she answered breathily. They'd never said the words before, and though they came easily, they echoed with a feeling of finality that caused his stomach to drop in his belly. He leaned down to nuzzle his sleeping son's head, determined to be back before his baby got much bigger. He rose and reached out to draw a finger down Scully's face, slowly at her chin to wipe away the tears that pooled there, an upside-down boutique of liquid grief. He felt it again now as they lay in the early morning light, Scully asleep at his side. Grief seemed to be all he ever caused her, his beliefs, his quest, and his responsibility, his vow to protect. His love came at a price and it always had. He was Midas with a tragic touch. Yet he wouldn't give her up. His duty, his obligation, now was to keep her in his life. 3,000 miles away but safe, alive. Selfishly, heroically, it made no difference to him now. A crusade was still a crusade, no matter what words used to describe it. She rolled a little in her sleep, as much as the tiny bed would allow her, and burrowed even further against him. He wouldn't be able to move if he tried. Their legs and arms tangled, their skin hot and stuck together, like the roots of trees, hopelessly intertwined. If she was a part of him now, she was the part that ached. His heart would shatter if she were gone. He was sure of it. He felt his eyelids pulling downward, but didn't want to sleep. There was never enough time for them together. He was never allowed his fill of holding her. She had a tangible piece of him that she could touch every day, which could touch her back. He couldn't see their son, her half of the child. This memory, this night, would be all he would carry. He soaked in all he could that night and through the dawn, breathing in and out. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there. <laughs>